Our God in heaven, we do trust that you are here. We are willing and able to gather here uh, to discipline ourselves to show up because we know that you are you are here, you're in our hearts, you're with our folks on Zoom, you're in our space right now, and because of that, uh, we trust you. We open our hearts and our hands, our eyes and our ears to you. Please move us like you always do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we're in our Lent series, moving toward Easter, journeying to the cross with our self-emptying God. And it started with that beautiful poem, an early Christian hymn in Philippians 2, when Paul talks about Jesus being equal with God, but did not grasp that God. He did not consider equality with God something to take hold of for his own interests, but he let go of it and emptied himself to the point of being a human, a bond slave, and finally the, the degradation of a crucifixion death. But then God highly exalted him and showed that this is who he is. This is God, this kind of self-emptying person. This is a core characteristic of who God is. And so we're kind of seeing different ways in which that reality shapes how we engage with our lives now and how we experience that God now. And so we're going to see that as Paul today describes his own experience of detaching from the gains that he could take hold of. So Jesus detached from the gains that were his, that were owed to him, and he chose to let go of them in order to suffer and then be exalted, experience resurrection. And Paul challenges his readers toward the same, and, is, and it will show us today how he experiences the same as well. And so he detaches from the things that he could get gained from in his identity and his achievements and his affiliations so that he can instead gain Christ. And so we're going to start in chapter 3, verse 1. If you have that little sheet, it has Philippians Chapter 3, uh, 1 through 11 on it. You want to follow along. If you don't have that, get a Bible out or something. That's the only reason I'll let you look at the phone. Is, is Scripture's on there. But if you check Twitter, God knows. You know what I'm saying? So we're in Philippians 3, verse 1 through 11. Let's start here, verse 1. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I love Paul is classic preacher. He'll say finally when he got two chapters left to write. We're halfway done, but in closing. I love it, man. In conclusion, when a preacher says that, you know you got a good 10 more minutes left. Paul's like, i got two chapters, but let me just make you think that I'm almost done. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. And this verse seems kind of detached from what's to come, but we're going to circle back to it near the end. That this, but that fact that he has a, a command again to rejoice. We've already seen him have that command before. Remember, he's in a suffering uh, awful situation and uh, house arrest in Rome. When he's writing this, the Philippians are a fledgling, vulnerable, weak, new congregation under threat, just as all congregations were. And yet there's a command that comes from living in the hope of Jesus to rejoice. And he writes this next little thing. To write the same things to you is not troublesome to me. And for you, it is a safeguard to write the same things to you. I love this, too, because a lot of times as we walk in the faith, we imagine that we will have like endless new things to discover. Like, oh, I clicked that off the box. I'm glad that God brought me through that. And I learned that lesson 10 years ago. And now I'm never going to learn it again. So bring on the new stuff. But in reality, most of us have like, you know, two or three lies that we'll battle our whole lives. You know, and we thought we, we beat it one time and then it will reemerge in a new way, like in 10 years from now. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's that lesson that I keep learning about that God's keep teaching me. And that's what Paul knows this is a season he's got to keep telling him the same things because the threat always remains. And so what is that threat that he needs to have a safeguard against? Verse two, beware of the dogs, 
Beware of the evil workers. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. Who's he talking about here, man? These people sound crazy. Dogs and mutilate the flesh? What is this, a horror movie or something? So first of all, that he tells them to beware, to watch out, to look out for, pay attention. And this is a thing that I think we can get lose track of in an environment where it's so easy to gather to worship. We don't have any real threats here. And so it can kind of lull us to sleep a little bit. I remember about a year ago, I watched this outstanding documentary of the Iranian church. The church in Iran is exploding over there. It's wild, crazy, awesome things happening. And, but because of that, they're experiencing persecution, as you would expect from their Muslim surroundings. It's a tense situation. And this documentary was covering that. And it described this, a couple from Iran that got out of there. They left there. They moved to the States to escape the persecution. They were safe and sound. And like a few years later, the wife said, take me back. I need to go back to Iran. And she said, because there is a satanic lullaby lulling American Christians to sleep and I'm getting sleepy. I need to wake up. Take me back. She'd rather go back to Iran where there's threat, but where her faith is awake. She's attentive. She's watching out. And I think sometimes we lose track that we are in a spiritual war zone. And that's not to make us fearful. It's to make us attentive. Satan's really not getting us in the most fearful, obvious ways. He's always trying to pull away to distract. And Paul's saying, watch out. Now we're watching out for dogs, evil workers, and those who mutilate the flesh. So Paul's got these three insults that would usually be used by the crowd that he's going against. So a big threat in the early church were Christians who were of a Jewish background, but they followed Jesus. And the big thing they kept trying to do is make everyone, all the Gentiles coming into the faith, become Jews first before they get Jesus. So to get in, you need Jesus plus Jewish things like circumcision and keeping Sabbath and doing the food laws and the calendar and all that kind of stuff. And if you don't do that, you need that and Jesus. And then you get the gospel and that nothing makes Paul more fired up than that. He he can deal with sexual morality and all kinds of crazy things. He seems to have more grace for it. But for that alone, he flips out. And when he writes to the Galatians, they really battle this. And he just goes right into telling them they are cursed says it twice. He just skips all the thanksgivings and hellos and are we cool and everything. It is like a curse is anyone who adds to the gospel like that. And so these people that were Jewish Christians would often refer to outsiders, those outside the faith, those Gentiles, those greasy, oily Gentiles as dogs. They were unclean. And as they were doing evil works and needed to do the good works of the law in order to really get in. And so Paul flips that on them, that they're actually the evil workers. And they describe themselves, check out this identity. They would describe themselves as the circumcision. Man, if I'm trying to think of like a cool band name or like, you know, look, let me tell you about my cool people. We're the circumcision. (laughs) I don't think so. But Paul flips it and uses a word for mutilation of the flesh, which might be a thing that pagans would do when they're like thrashing and stuff in order to like worship in that way. He uses that that way to say like, you guys are really the ones that are on the outside. You guys that are trying to add to the gospel have Jesus plus some other stuff. You guys are the ones who are the dogs that need to get clean. You guys are the ones that are the evil workers who need to come this side with just Jesus and need to do the good works there. And you're the ones that need to be to join in with the true family of God, which is just Jesus. And so this is where we're kind of landing with within that with verse three. He says, for it is we who are the circumcision, meaning we are the true family of God. They were in the right who check this out. Worship in the spirit of God. And boast in Jesus in contrast to these other folks 
who have confidence in the flesh. And he's saying we don't have confidence in the flesh. And so here's here's the kind of distinction here that Paul wants to lay out. That is a challenge for every generation. Our threat might not be things related to our Jewish ethnic identity. It most likely is not a threat to us at all. But all of us have things that are in the flesh, that are external aspects of our life, that are observable, that are seen, that are noticed by us and by other people, that are associated with our identity, our upbringing, our ethnicity, our affiliations, and even our accomplishments and achievements. And the temptation for us all, because that is clear, it's obvious, it's right in front of us, it makes us feel secure, is to find confidence in that, those things. We, we cling to that, and that gives us a sense of false confidence before God. And it is often things that the surrounding culture would value. So if, if the surrounding culture values those things, and I have them, I feel confident compared to them, and that gives me lies that I'm confident before God. And Paul's saying... That confidence in the flesh and something outside of Jesus, outside of worshiping him from the spirit is off, very off. And instead, you want to be like Paul, who is all about confidence in Jesus and puts no confidence in the flesh, even that Jewish flesh that folks are talking about. So when he's talking about Jewish, the flesh there, he's talking about here, Jewish nationalism. It's like associated with Jewish ethnicity, Jewish nationalism. And he's saying he's not going to be confident in that. But then he says... Even though I, too, have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. He's like, if we want to play the game of who's the most Jewish, I win every time. My resume is unbeatable. I'm the most Jewish of all the Jews here. Everybody reading this, I have more Jewishness than all these folks. And let me just give you my resume to show you how I could beat all y'all and how confident I am in my identity, accomplishments, and affiliations that come with being a Jew. And so he's going to list off his resume, which would have been normal. First century folks, man, they boast. It is a, a feature of life to boast on purpose about things that would give you a sense of honor before the rest of the community. And so he's he writes like he's used to this. He's done this a time or two but in his pre-Jesus life. And so he starts listing them off. He says, he was circumcised on the eighth day. This is a command of the Torah that Jewish boys would get back circumcised on the eighth day. He's like, I, got, I checked that box before I was even conscious. I was, I was already checking that box off circumcised. He's a member of the people of Israel. He's not a proselyte. He didn't come in later in life. He was born and raised a true Israelite. You can check that on his resume. And further deeper, of the tribe of Benjamin. If you know that uh, the Israelites, there were 12 tribes. There was only in the first century two tribes left over that could trace their lineage all the way back to Abraham. It didn't get mixed with any other folks from other countries. And Benjamin was one of them. So he was like, I'm even more special. Not to mention the first king of Israel, whose name was Saul, which was Paul's old name. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul's adding to his boast. This is his affiliation that he's boasting in. A Hebrew, born of Hebrews, strong association to the Hebrew language and Hebrew land. And he's saying, I'm born to Hebrew-speaking folks, not those Greek-speaking folks that are all around us now. We come from Hebrew-speaking folks, and I can speak Hebrew. You can even see this in the beginning of Acts 22. He gets a chance to speak and give his defense in front of other Jewish people. And he starts speaking in Hebrew and they wake up. It says they get quiet and start paying attention because they're impressed by his ability to speak Hebrew. So he's like, I have that. As to the law, every Jewish sect 
in the first century had some kind of position to how they grappled with the Torah. And he says, I'm a Pharisee, which is among the most strict interpreters of the the Torah. They took it the most seriously. They knew it like the back of their hand. They applied it better than everybody else. He's like, when it comes to how I relate to the law, I'm a Pharisee. And as to zeal, zeal is a technical Jewish term of people that would take their faith so seriously, they would try to purify Israel by literally killing people who were not of the true ilk, which is why his example of zeal is that he persecuted the church. And we see from Acts that Paul oversaw the killing of of Stephen because he was not living out his Jewishness in the right way. And there were people who thought that was a righteous act to do at that time. He's chalking that up to his resume. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This does not mean that he was sinless, that he made no mistakes, but the law made provisions when you made a mistake. You could go to temple, you could do the washings, the sacrifices, and get clean again. And he's saying, in the rare case that I was to make a mistake, since I was a special Pharisee who spoke Hebrew, I would make sure to go clean it up and go to temple. So if you want to have a competition of who is the most Jewish and deserves to have some confidence in the flesh, that's me. Check out my resume. And so let's just pause here. To ask the question for us, because I realize that, that there's a gap there, a historical, cultural gap for us. We're like, yeah, it's interesting. Oh, that's nice. Tribe Benjamin, that's cool. Anthony, get on to how it relates to me. You get a good point. We're not Jewish folks that battled that battle. But all of us have, have things associated with our identity. So like where we come from, our race, our nationality, our family of origin, that could be a source of pride. Maybe some of you are like, I don't have any pride in those stuff. But all of, all of us may have something in there that we have a source of pride in. Or our affiliations to be a part of this group and not that group. Now, if I hear you're a part of this group, I kind of snub my nose at you because I'm a part of this group. And we kind of have it made over here. We know our stuff. We're a little bit better. And you have, we have those things that we're a little bit arrogant and we're prone to cling to. And then our achievements and accomplishments so for him, being a Pharisee, he's a well-educated, he's coming up in the ranks, teaching the law, he's coming under the best of the best teachers, he's got a good reputation, people respect him, they want to follow his lead, and we are prone to point to those things, achievements and accomplishments in our life. And so think about that. What are those things that people might envy you for? What, might, what do you often want to post on social media, or are you tempted to post on media, or actually post on social media, to get some extra kind of attention or affirmation. What are some of the first quickest things you hope people notice about you before you have to tell them? But if you have to tell them, what do you hope to slip in there to let them know about yourself? What are those things that you have a little bit of pride or arrogance around? What is something that would be devastating if you lost it today? It would just totally break you. What is that? All of us have those things and it's okay to have those temptations. Just name what it is. But whatever those things are, We're prone to have a false sense of confidence in those things before other people and before God. It's the the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that Jesus tells. When the Pharisee stands before God, and we might even, this might even come in our prayers. We will thank God that we aren't like those greasy people over there and that we're a little better of this thing over here. And we will praise God for that because we are not as bad as those other people. Jesus tells that parable and is a way to critique that mindset. It's a temptation for us all. And so all of us have those things that we cling to a little more for our sense of confidence before God and before other people. Things that are socially valued that other people may like to have or may like to be. And so for me, I think about my family. I think about my education. 
I think about my career trajectory. I think about physical health and well-being. I mean, those are things that give, the, because I have them, give me a sense of security, of safety, of confidence. And many of those things aren't bad. All of his list, the only one that's bad is that he persecuted the church. All the rest of them are pretty neutral. Not bad at all. And yet there's a threat that when we give false confidence in them, that they turn evil and they are corrupting. So then what perspective shall we have on those things that we will be prone to cling to? Here's Paul in verse 7. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as lost because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So Paul's got an accounting metaphor here. Gains and losses, assets and liabilities, where he's up high, where he's down low. Carolyn's like, it's tax season. I'm not trying to talk about this right now. But Paul's got accounting metaphors for us to say, these things were all in my gains list. All of my assets, all the ways that I'm ahead of the game. But when he encountered Jesus, there was a total conversion. He didn't just get saved. It's not just like, I'm forgiven now. He shifts all that stuff that he used to cling to with false confidence to the loss category. Those are out now. And he puts his only thing in the gain category now is Jesus. And he suffered legit loss. That brother lost it all. He was on the come up. He was ready to be a leader. He was getting respect. He was financially secure and well off because they were well taken care of. And he gives all that up to be this wandering teacher of this brand new movement. He gets beat up. He goes to prison. I mean, it's a terrible, he gets martyred eventually. It's an outrageous outcome. And he experiences that legit loss. And he says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I regard them as, check this out, as rubbish. That's a nice, clean word to put there. But in reality, the word behind that word rubbish, I'm usually not like the type of like, well, the Greek word says, but you know, sometimes it's helpful. But the Greek word behind that is this word scubala, which is uh, like the word for excrement, like in like raw sewage in, Old, in, in New Testament times. So, I mean, it's like the closest thing to like a, a curse word in the New Testament. I can't tell you really in English what the word scubala would mean. Because the elders might beat the scubula out of me if I say it up here. But that's what he's saying. These were gains, and he comes to regard them as plain old raw sewage. It's a quick, that's quite a turnaround. It says twice that he comes to regard them in that way now. He shifts them to the lost category. He experiences a sense of detachment, of letting go. He's not gripping hold of aspects of his identity, his affiliation, or his accomplishments that once gave him a false sense of superiority over other people or confidence before God. So what's he get instead then? What kind of gains does he get when he gains Jesus? I put a list there of all kinds of gains you get when you get Jesus. Let's talk about these gains right now. He says, in order that I may gain Christ, and here's the first thing he gains, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, being found in him. Being in Christ is one of the most regular things that, uh, that the regular ways that Paul describes uh, Christian identity. That when we are baptized, it says we are baptized in Romans 6 into Christ. We are baptized into his death, into his burial, and into his resurrection. And from then on out, we are in him. We are drowned in him. We are always in him. And he's in us. And we're full of Christ. And Christ is full of us. We're just bound to him. It's like permanent union. Permanent witness 
We never would experience a loneliness or a non-belonging again. And isn't it the case that much of that way we would cling to the false confidence of our identity and our achievements and those kind of things is because it makes us feel like we belong, that we are not alone, and that we would not get abandoned because we have something worthwhile to give? That feeling is permanently addressed when you are found in Jesus. And you can't get that while still holding on to other things and attaching to them. And so now he is in Christ. Be found in him. Colossians 3 says you have been hidden with Christ. Your life is hidden there forever. There's a sense of safety with that kind of belonging. It also says we would know him personally. It says two or three different times that I may know Christ as my, as my Lord, that I may know his power, that I may know him. And this is not a know about him. It's not Paul didn't go to Sunday school. He's able to do the Bible sort of thing. He knows how to repeat all the theology and all the dogma and stuff. It's not about knowing about him. This is like a relational and experiential knowing. A lot of times this word to know is used for the way that husbands and wives know each other in marriage. It's a relational knowing that comes when you are vulnerable enough to receive the sacrificial gift that Jesus has to offer just as our own relationships. You come to know a person differently when they sacrificially give you something and you receive it. And then you come to know them all the more differently when you experience the same for them. There's a sacrificial commitment there that reflects a sense of giving of the self and trust that leads to a knowing. There's some knowing you can't get without that kind of sacrifice. There's uh, this philosopher named Esther Lightcap Meek. Her name's amazing. And she writes this book called A Little Manual of Knowing and talks about the challenge that we have to love in order to know. That there's many things and many people you cannot know from a distance, knowing about them. You have to love first and you give yourself to them and you come to know them. And Paul's saying, if I'm holding on to confidence in other things, I'm withholding an experience of knowledge with Jesus that I wouldn't have otherwise. But if I sacrificially hold them loosely and experience a detachment of confidence in those things, I may become known by and know Jesus in a unique way that I wouldn't have otherwise. You literally could not know him while still holding on confidently to other things. There's something holding you back there. And we experience that in relationships with people, our friends, our family members. When there's a holding back, you may be able to know everything fact about them but you don't know them and they don't know you without a sense of vulnerable openness there. He also mentions this, that I may have a righteousness, not of my own verse nine that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. And so again, we seek a level of safety. Righteousness for us, we don't use that word hardly any time. If we use the word righteousness in our culture, it's usually used negatively, like self-righteous, kind of has moral overtones, like he's more moral, I'm less moral. In this case, righteousness just means like in the heavenly law court scene when there's a judgment before God, he declares us innocent. He declares us in the right. We are justified. We are righteous and in right relationship with God. He's saying many of us, when we think about the way we are facing God, there's a temptation to appeal to ourselves, other things we will be confident in. But he's saying, I don't want that at all. I want to stand before judgment before God and point to Jesus and be like, I'm with him. I want to, I don't look at me, just point, just think, look at Jesus. And whatever you would think about Jesus, let that be assumed to me since I'm in him. And that will be the way that I'm declared righteous. 
Think about the level of safety and judgment when it's not about you. Not about your good or your bad. It's not about either one. Jesus justifies you regardless. And there's nothing else that you can point to yourself to cling to now. Because he declares you righteous because of his work. It says it comes through. I don't like English translations that say faith in Christ. One of the best translations would be to say the faithfulness of Christ. That it was Christ's faithfulness that makes it possible for me to be declared righteousness, righteous. And I respond to that from faith from the inside. Not by appealing to externalities, to aspects of my identity or my affiliations or my associations. And then he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. So far, y'all tracking. Oh, yeah, I like this, man. I'm safe in judgment. You know, I get to know Jesus, man. It's all one big happy family. I'm in him. We're in the big heavenly party. Whoa, suffering. Hang on a second now. I want happiness and ease. I'm not trying to share in the sufferings. But Paul knows the only way to resurrection is through death. You can't experience the power of resurrection when there's no dying, when there's no suffering. And this suffering, this shared suffering is a chance to participate with Jesus in his worldwide restoration project. Suffering is what happens when the goodness of God encounters a broken world. You can't have the utter goodness and holiness and purity and love of God encounter a sinful and rebellious world without some suffering going down. And he's saying you get to participate in that now. When you choose to follow me through and through, you will experience that suffering, but I'm with you in it. And we are in this world changing mission together, starting with you. And in the case, man, the suffering times is when real character transformation happens, doesn't it? When my life's all well and good, I'm like, I'm happy. Like, let's have a party. Let's celebrate. But man, my character formation has a stall point. It's like, man, I'm just kind of the same person I was yesterday and the day before. And I'm kind of just living the dream of relaxation and happiness and comfort. But the times of suffering are the times of formation. And that's when those aspects of our identity we are clinging to get transformed radically and go through this radical, uh, miraculous reformation to be used now for Jesus. And so we go back to Paul, all those things he clinged to, his identity as an Israelite. And he was prone to whitewash that history and see that in such an awful way or such a great way. And it's all glowing and perfect. And through Jesus now, he can see with honest eyes. And look back at his Jewish history and see the good that was worth celebrating and also name the lost there. And we see aspects in his letters where this formation happens. And when you're holding on to your identity too tightly, to aspects of your identity too tightly, and this is always a threat for us. And one of the strongest, wealthiest nations that's ever lived, we're prone to value our American exceptionalism and have a sense of superiority. And you know you're holding on to that too tightly. When someone speaks critically of it and you can't sit in it. If you get real offensive, defensive and someone starts being critical of our country or of our race, as mostly white people, that is when you know you might be clinging too tightly. If you hold it loosely, you can be honest about the good and the bad because you're detached from it. You don't get a false sense of security. And so if you were to discover negative things about it, it doesn't alarm you. There's transformation that can happen there. And so Paul experiences that when he suffers with Jesus. He knows in the power of the resurrection as that gets shed new light on. His education 
all of his education to be a Hebrew of Hebrews and to come up and be a great Pharisee and that education that was twisted and abused to murder other Christians, that same education is what makes him write these like epic theological documents when he's just trying to keep churches alive. And we still read it today because they're so packed with truth and validity and a great way of describing reality. And he's able to go to culture after culture in different neighborhood and different city. And his brain is able to teach the gospel and package it for these people to understand. This same education that he clinged to too tightly for harm and, and, and arrogantly was now when he suffers with Jesus transformed. And he knows experientially the power of the resurrection when he uses that then in his ministry. And then his zeal and his blamelessness, his, that was teaching him towards obedience. It was teaching him towards discipline. It was teaching him to value holiness. It was teaching him to trust and an authority outside of himself. And of course, it was abused. It was distorted. It was used for harm. It was used for arrogance because he clinged too tightly to it. He gave, had a false sense of confidence in it. But then he releases it and detaches it and gives it to Jesus. And Jesus transforms him and he goes through this path of suffering. But then on the other side, he knows experientially the power of the resurrection when that same obedience is used. But now it's towards Jesus. That same kind of zeal for like health and and fullness and holiness is, is still there. But it's toward Jesus and not toward Jewish nationalism and toward the law. He knows in his bones the fellowship of Jesus sufferings as he follows Jesus to detach from those things he could grab hold of for a false sense of confidence. But then he knows experientially in his bones the power of the resurrection. When Jesus still affirms so much about that, so much of who Paul is and who he's become was just transformed and reshaped to be used for the gospel purposes. And he's saying, I want that. I don't want any false confidence anymore. Because people that do that, you know them. And when you've been there too, those people are kind of brats, man. They're like more harmful. They're they're less open to change. They're less open to honest conversation. They lack a sense of humility. They don't know how to learn something different than what they've experienced. They have a sense of rivalrous rejection of people. But people that experience what Paul's have, they're the freest people I know, man, because they're not living with holding tightly to anything else but Jesus and everything else they're able to receive with gratitude while they have it. And if they somehow lose it, it wasn't a a, a core source of their confidence and well-being. And finally, he gets this eternal security of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And it's just a fact, man, that this life will never make sense. Our suffering will never be paid back in this life. It's not like, okay, I suffered that one time last Thursday. Therefore, I better get a gain and a benefit that is equivalent next Thursday. That's not how it works, man. You accumulate up the sacrificial suffering of the Christian life. And many of us have experienced Far more hurts and pains and difficulty from living in a broken world. And all of our clean, or waiting is waiting to the last day when Jesus is going to wrap up all of that unacknowledged and harmful and painful suffering that we've experienced because of Jesus, that we've experienced just in a sinful world. And he's going to change all that and resurrect it from the dead and make us right and bring full and permanent healing. And he's saying that alone waiting on us gives me all I need to today hold loosely to these other things that I wish to cling to for security. 
saying they will be corruptible. They're scubala. They're going to go away. They're going to decay. But Jesus will not. And that's the only one we have, the only option we have for eternal safety with him. And he has shown that not by telling us from afar and sending a carrier pigeon down low and being like, hey, I'm going to make it right one day. He became a human being and died a real death Historians that aren't even Christians have written about it to describe what happened to him in order to overcome that death and show the whole world that he's making things right. His body was the first fruits of that resurrection from the dead. And for all of those else from everywhere else in the globe across history who are found in him get to experience that too. We are here rejoicing in the Lord, as it says in verse one, as we wait and look forward with hope that that indeed will be true. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we are only here, only able to preach this, only able to read this, only able to rejoice because of the great loss you endured to love us to the end. You've overcome the enemies of sin, of Satan, of death to make us right with you, to give us belonging with you, to give us a job in this world and to secure our future. And we wait on you. We can worship and rejoice in the hope that one day you will make things right. Let it be, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we remember and celebrate that victory every week through communion. So please irreverently start opening up your communion bucket things over here. Cups. My cup go. I lost my communion cup. I'm going to work hard to open this thing. So I'm going to read this passage from 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul remembers the Lord's Supper, the history behind it, and why we celebrate it. And we're going to take it in unison together, because we all belong in that righteous family now. We've all been made right with him. We're all in the same family. And we all got in, not by our achievements, but by the death of Jesus, by his resurrection. So the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take the bread now. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So listen to what we just did by doing that together. For as often, every single time you eat this bread, And drink the cup. You look backwards in history. Not to proclaim your accomplishments or your identity or your associations or affiliations. You proclaim his death. That's the only way in. Until when? Until he comes. Because he's coming back one day. And he's going to make things right. Let's stand and let's worship together.